0: So here we are. We are uh, moving on in our series on uh, the book of uh, 1 Peter. Over the last uh, number of weeks, we've been just digging into this incredible, uh, beautiful little book in the New Testament that's really speaking to uh, a group of Christians that are first-generation Christians in their culture. And uh, in that place, in Asia Minor, the the communities to which Peter wrote this book— uh, just writing to Christian communities. We don't have a clear idea of what size they were or how many Christians Peter was writing to in that place, but they were a group among a culture that was different. They were Christians among pagans, and they were people who were uh, desperate to uh, find out what it means to live out their Christianity and culture, and, and Peter writes to them and has uh, encouraging things to say. And uh, What we're going to talk about today uh, in our text is we're going to talk about uh... what it is to live and how we as christians live relative to authority uh, uh... peter in this passage speaks a little bit about how uh... the christians are live to live relative to the uh... roman government that's occupying of course all of that territory at that time and how the christians are also to relate uh... to uh... this in particular he writes to slaves and we're gonna talk a little bit about that uh... how he relates to slaves and how slaves are to relate to their masters in that culture? Uh, That, of course, is an incredibly loaded uh, issue and question for us. We're going to just dig into that in a few moments. Uh, But first, um, how do we relate to uh, government and figures of authority and leadership and and, and authority in our culture? Right now, we are in the middle of the hugest political gong show uh, you have ever seen. (laughs) It's. It's. I don't know. I don't know if you follow American politics at all. I have many American friends, and and so of course follow all of this. Uh, American friends on Twitter and Facebook, and I, I follow some of the nasty things that are said and some of the thoughtful dialogue that's going on. But but it's a just a huge, incredible gong show. Not all that different from the one that we experienced a short time ago. Uh, an incredible uh, experience in social media and Facebook and and Twitter of, of people saying uh, incredibly, uh, in some cases thoughtful things, uh, sort of slogans and sound bites and little pieces that are sort of meaningful and, and help us connect with the major ideas that are being argued about, but in a lot of cases uh, words spoken, in some cases from one authority to another, uh, but in some cases uh, from one person to another or about an authority figure or about a candidate, that really are just unkind and disrespectful, and the tone of some of this discussion in our country and in our uh, in the country to the south, our, our neighbors, is just uh, brutal. Uh, just just a few little lowlights from the uh, primaries in the United States. Trump says this, uh, talking about Rubio. He says, I call him lightweight Rubio. I see him starting to sweat like. I've never seen anything like it. Thank God he has really large ears, the biggest ears I've ever seen, because they're protecting him. I've never seen other human beings sweat like this guy. This is us dealing with the political issues of our time. Bush says this, just one other thing. I've got to get off my chest. Donald Trump is a jerk. You cannot insult your way to the presidency. Who is he kidding? As he calls him a jerk. (laughs) A little bit of hypocrisy in that one. Rubio saying he's flying around on hair, force one, and tweeting, a guy with the worst spray tan in America is attacking me for putting on makeup. Donald Trump likes to sue people. He should sue whoever did that to his face. Rubio, he's always calling me little Marco. Uh, He has the hands the size of someone who is five foot two. Have you seen his hands? And you know what they say about men with small hands? You can't trust them. This is the level of political debate and discourse that's going on in our times, and we weren't much better in the Canadian election uh, uh, this fall. We weren't much better. Uh, How many comments did we hear about Justin Trudeau's hair? Right? And how much did we see uh, in terms of uh, just, just... anger and, and disrespect against uh, uh, the incumbent uh, Stephen Harper in our own election. I mean, I had to put up with F. Harper all the time in my Facebook feed and in my Twitter feed. And I see the F word all the time. Like, like it's, it's, it's disrespectful and it's gross and it's awful and it's a low level of engagement. And some of this coming from Christians, a low level of engagement with the actual issues because these are the real things that we're dealing with. We're dealing with aboriginal issues in defense and environment, abortion, education, immigration, transportation, taxation, electoral reform, criminal justice, corruption, resource management, homelessness, health care. These are not small issues. They are not simple issues. They are complex. And no 120-character tweet is an answer to any one of those issues or an answer to the question of who can speak into those issues and who can lead us through those things. It's it's incredibly complex and here we are as people in our culture and and oftentimes I think some of the vindictive uh, language that sort of uh, rises up out of us comes from a sense of powerlessness, a sense of I don't know how to affect this massive thing that's going on, I don't know how to make a difference in it, I don't know how to say something that's going to change the course of history, but there's certainly in history been times of a higher level of dialogue. Uh, in the 1700s, and 1775, uh, uh, John Wesley and his uh, colleague, his his protege, really uh, Asbury, was was arguing about whether or not uh, Americans should uh, become involved in essentially a revolution against the British Crown. Uh, Wesley thought, yes, absolutely uh, we we need to respect the crown we We think this issue of taxation is not an issue we should be killing people over. Uh, we should just uh, lay low as citizens and and of course, his protege was saying, Take up arms and kill the british <laughs> <laughs> and and but but the level of discourse and the level of dealing with these issues at those points in history were were at a completely different level. Let me read you a sample of a, of a document written by John Wesley in 1775. But a people will resume, you say, the power, which they never surrendered, except no need of any exception. They never surrendered it at all. They could not surrender it, for they never had it. I did, the people, unless you mean the Norman army, give William the Conqueror his power, And to which of its successors did the people of England give the sovereign power? This is mere political cant. Ten times over in different words, you profess yourselves to be contending for liberty, but it is a vain, empty profession. Unless you mean by that threadbare word a liberty from obeying your rightful sovereign and from keeping the fundamental laws of your country. And this undoubtedly it is for which the confederated colonies are now contending. That doesn't sound a lot like, dude, you have really bad hair. (laughs) There's a level of discourse and a level of engagement in in many examples in history that the church was engaged in uh, on a political level. But but even even more basic than that, how do we hold ourselves? uh, How do we hold our posture uh, relative to the authorities. And this is really what Peter is speaking to in First uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, verses 11 to 25. And I'm just going to read the text and then we'll unpack a few things together. Uh, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering, because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. For now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And Peter brings it full circle uh, to the shepherding of God. And this is where we're going to end up. But uh, let's just unpack a few things in the text uh, here. Uh, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And this is also the same way that Peter started this book. He he acknowledges that as Christian people, as people who are followers of Jesus Christ, that we are different from our culture. We are different from uh, the world around us, that there are rulers and, and leaders over us, but that we have an allegiance to a different country. Our citizenship is uh, not here in Canada, primarily, as, as awesome and wonderful as our country is, our citizenship, of course, is, is first and foremost in heaven. Our citizenship is, is built in a relationship with God. And so he calls us to uh, abstain from sinful desires. And that's just a reminder that our sinful desires uh, are, are common to us all. And that there is uh, power and authority for us to not follow after them. That's just a a little thing to always remind ourselves about is that uh, because our, our culture wants us to believe in some ways that we are animals and that we're just purely subject to whatever it is we want and whatever it is we want. As human individuals, we chase after that thing and get it and that's who we're called to be unrestrained people who go after that thing that they want and get it Uh, and maybe that's the american dream or maybe that's a relationship or maybe that's a a sexual orientation or maybe that's whatever it is but but peter reminds us that it's it's possible for us to abstain from things that we might want uh... and he, he says uh... live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong they may see your good deeds, and, and, and I love this, and glorify God on the day he visits us. Peter doesn't expect our good deeds, in this, in this thought, to be a vindication of us in the present. He doesn't expect our good deeds to be recognized in the present. He doesn't expect our good deeds uh, to be uh, immediately recognized. He, he hopes that they will be ultimately recognized uh, when God visits that uh, there will be some moment in the future when when God returns, when God comes uh, to earth and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he will be able to point to us and say, see me, that's the same thing you saw in them. I was in them all along. You can glorify me because I was always there speaking to you through the church. I was always there speaking to you. Uh, through Christians, uh, and, and this word, uh, your good deeds and glorify God, they live such good lives among the pagans, that those, those, word good there isn't just uh, good as in the opposite of bad, that word there is actually in the, in the Greek, it means attractive, live such attractive lives, live lives that attract uh, people to you, that attract uh, people to Jesus in you, that there's a way to live that, that draws people in. Uh, going on, uh, submit yourselves. How many of you love that word, submit? <laughs> is that is that a word that we even get as a culture? <laughs> is that is that even a word that that we 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 understand? We that that completely doesn't compute for us as as people. Um, but God calls us to submit ourselves. Uh, for his sake, to every human authority, whether to the emperor or the supreme authority, or to governors. Now, what does that word "submit" mean? Because that, that w- every every word in the, in the New Testament is, is of course used for a reason. I think Peter writes quite intentionally and quite thoughtfully, and we see in the structure of the book that he's he's thought this out. And what he didn't use there is the word "obey." In Second Peter, he uses the word "obey." To refer to what Christians do to show their love for God. So, what's the distinction between submit and obey? Uh, submit is to uh, to reverence, to uh, respect, to uh, let that other person's will uh, have a place. Robey, what we're called to do for Christ, is a much more uh, proactive word. It means not just surrendering to uh, this thing that's coming against you, but it means to actively go out and accomplish the thing that you were called to do. It was mandated to you by the one who gave the order by the one who obeyed the command. We have a different way of loving Christ, a different way of relating to Christ than we do to relating to our authority. So this word submit, while it's still a terrifying word for us, it's a much softer word for how, than the word that Peter uses for how we relate to God. We're, we're called to obey Christ and submit to the authority. And there's a, there's a distinction there. There's a difference there. Uh, there's a difference in, in what that means. Um, And and just a note, uh, submit yourself to every human authority, uh, whether to the emperor, and then going down to the bottom to verse 17, honor the emperor. I thought it might be good to look up who the emperor was. In uh, 37 AD, a woman named uh, Agrippa the Younger, Agrippina the Younger, Um, had a baby boy, or sorry, it was a little bit earlier that she had the baby boy, and his name was Lucius Domitus. Uh, Shortly after he was born, uh, Agrippina the Younger poisoned her second husband, and she married a man named Claudius, who was the emperor of Rome, who was uh, Nero's grand-uncle. She renamed her boy, uh, Lucius, Nero. The emperor was Nero. Now, uh, at 17, Nero's mother murdered, of course, his stepfather, the emperor, and installed Nero as the emperor. Two years later, uh, or one year later, Nero killed his stepmother, Brother Britannicus, who was the natural son of the emperor because he thought he was a threat to his rule. Uh, two years after that, Nero uh, had his mother executed because he thought she was plotting to install someone else in place of him. How's your, how's your, how's you feeling about the family dynamics? <laughs> right? Nero had five wives, the first and third of whom for sure he killed. Most notably his third wife, Poppaea, who he kicked to death while she was pregnant with his second child. near was thought to have doused Christians in oil and tied them to stakes and lit them on fire to light his garden for a party. Fear God and honor the emperor. This is who Peter was calling the Christians to honor and to submit to. Well, by comparison, anyway, uh, Trump looks like an evangelical Christian compared to Nero. Uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, what a gong show! Right? What a gong show! What a mess! What does that mean? That Peter was was calling Christians to submit to this brutal leader, and it wasn't just that these were stories that were s- restricted to the cafes in Rome. This was, this was we have documentation on some of these things that, that spans the entire empire. Nero was known as a as a brutal leader. Uh, the book of uh, First Peter was written before uh, the the persecution of Nero, where he uh, took uh, the neighboring properties and and. I mean, it's not proven historically. There's some debate about that, but theoretically he basically just lit three districts of Rome on fire and burned them to ground, the ground so he could build an addition to his palace. At the age of 30, uh, Nero committed suicide. He'd had enough of himself. Submit to the emperor. Honor the emperor. Why is Peter saying this? Why is Peter saying this? Uh, He gives three reasons in the text. He says, First, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. When we submit to leadership that is unkind and unhealthy and not good, we're standing there before that leader, we're standing there before that leadership structure, and we're not looking at them. We're submitting to the Lord. We're submitting for the Lord's sake, for him, for Jesus. Not as a gift to that emperor, not as a gift to that leader, not as a gift to that politician, but as a gift to the Lord. Uh, We don't submit uh, because we fear leadership. We don't uh, submit because we're just compliant sheep, uh, because we've turned our brains off and we don't see the evil that's there. We don't submit uh, out of fear of, of retribution or repi- reprisal, we submit for the sake of the Lord. We submit for the sake of the Lord. And the other reason he gives there is uh, to you who are sent by, uh, to, or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong, and to commend those do right. Uh, who do right? Uh, government is is a necessary thing. In, in our world. Government is a necessary thing in our world. God, God installs governments as a limitation on human evil. There's these two thoughts in this in this passage. To punish those who do wrong, so to limit human evil in the world as best the government can. And two, to promote the good. And there's all kinds of incredible stuff in the in the Old Testament and the New about uh, government being called to lift up the poor and and care for the downtrodden and care for the the broken and to create safety uh, for people and and all of that. So so there's these two functions and purposes of government. And and as bad as governments can be, and as bad as governments are. Um, A bad government is still better than no government. Uh, We can go on a road, and and I don't see any of our bridges that are crumbling into dust because we organize uh, people to take care of the roads. Uh, We keep infrastructure in in place, we build uh, subways, we build railways, we, we maintain buses. Uh, we do all kinds of things that, that some government, as frustrated as we are by, it, uh, by waste and corruption and things that we see in it, some government is better than no government. It's an installation of God to limit the effects of human evil on the world so that the whole planet doesn't just destroy itself, so that we don't just destroy ourselves completely. That there's a purpose for government. There's a reason why God has installed it. And, and just look at this, uh, who are sent by him. Who are sent by God. We have to acknowledge some crazy mystery in which God is involved in the political process. Some crazy mystery in which in which God is involved. So we submit ourselves for that reason. And and three, we we submit ourselves to silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. We, We do it for the sake of our witness. We we submit ourselves. We live as respectful uh, people in society to uh, to for the sake of the witness of the gospel. For the sake of of being something in culture that stands and looks different than what we see in culture. Christians are to be different. Christians are to be uh, uh, different from from the way people are in our in, in the world. We're we're to be seen as something that is. Uh, standing apart, something that is standing more beautifully, that something that is standing more strongly, something that is standing uh, as an example of goodness, uh, when uh, the world is living in entropy, a tendency towards a maximum randomness, which is what uh, the human soul uh, leaves us. Uh, we're called to submit. Now, that doesn't mean that we're never called, resist. The scriptures are filled with all kinds of times uh, in which uh, people are committing acts of civil disobedience, where people stand against unjust rulers. We look at stories of David and Saul, and we look at, uh, you know, many stories in the New Testament of when uh, Christians are called to do something and, and they're killed for not doing that thing. How do you know when the right time is not to submit? How do you know when the right time is uh, to uh, resist? And I think this is just a a simple, simple principle of of civil disobedience that uh, comes, uh, was articulated by uh, Martin Luther King Jr. And he said basically this, um, you disobey when the government commands what God forbids or forbids what God commands. When uh, y- the values of the kingdom, when the values of God come in direct conflict with a command of God, that's when we resist. And that's when we let ourselves be beheaded. That's when we let ourselves, uh, isn't that, that some fun? Be whipped. And I'm just unpacking this text. I mean, I could have glossed over this. I could have skipped this one and gone on to something else. This isn't, a, this isn't really the funnest text in the world, right? But we said we'd preach the whole book and teach the whole book, so we're teaching the whole book. You know, you, you can't skip parts. Uh, but he, he goes and he takes it on to, to, to a further level. He takes it deeper. He says this. He says, slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. Anybody had a harsh boss? Anybody had a, an employer that they didn't like all that much? I, I've had a couple. Submit yourselves to, to rules of the harsh. I, I, just before we get into this little piece, So I want to say something briefly. About slavery, This text is one of the texts that people look at when they look at the Bible and they say uh, the Bible is a barbaric book that, uh, that promotes slavery and, and we shouldn't pay any attention to what's said in the Bible. But uh, what, you, what you need to know here about this text is that this document is the first place in ancient, ancient literature ever anywhere that we know of where anybody wrote anything to slaves where anybody wrote anything addressed to slaves. And, and, and it is notable here, as Peter writes this uh, in, in, in his book, To the Churches in Asia Minor, that he's writing it to the whole church, which includes slaves and masters, and he doesn't address the masters at all. In an open letter to the churches in that space and time, Peter uh, writes this thing. He he goes past the masters and he says, Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate. And as the masters are seeing this read in the church, uh, they're judging themselves and saying, Am I good or am I considerate? And all of a sudden we have in this text uh, really a bomb that's laid at the foot of slavery at the foundations of slavery where all of a sudden a writer is now addressing slaves as human beings not as property not as cattle not as chattel not as objects but as human beings and it is this text that we see uh, used by William Wilberforce uh, to end slavery uh, in the UK. It is this text that we see Martin Luther King Jr. uh, speaking out of uh, in some of his glorious sermons where all of a sudden uh, looking back at, uh, at the issues of racism that have plagued the United States, that have plagued our culture, the issues of the ownership of people, all of a sudden in, in, in the Bible, uh, slaves are elevated to human beings. And it is absolutely everywhere where slaves are being set free, Christians are at the center of it and must always be at the center of it. The Christianity is a, is, is, a, is a religion of freedom. Uh, We see in Aristotle, in Greek philosophy, we see in Hinduism, we see in Buddhism, absolute dead silence on this issue. But in Christianity, the writers elevate uh, people who were once property to being people. And and the world changed because of this. There's a trajectory of freedom and grace and hope and life uh, in this, but... Peter is not an idealist. Peter knows that that this is going to take time to unravel. And he says, how slaves are you to endure in this intervening time? Well, you're still slaves. How are you to do it? And he says this. He says, "It, it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because you're conscious of God. But don't do wrong and receive a beating for it. You, you have to be a slave now. We, we can't fix this yet, but be, be a good slave. Be a good slave, and freedom will come. I think Peter knew that freedom would come in generations. Ahead, Because he could see in that time and in that place uh, where in a, in a home the church would be meeting. A church would be meeting in the home of a, of a, of a property owner. Somebody who owns a home. And the, and the slave would be leading the church and catechizing his master. And Peter saw this incredible system unravel because of the power of the gospel. Incredible thing happened in the church in those days where, where uh, slaves became people. And so he, he unpacks this and, and says, uh, it's not about how you you live, it's not about if you're commended by your society, it's not about if you're commended by the rulers or or the leaders in your culture, it's about is what you're doing commendable and commended before God? We live as as central in his kingdom. It says, and to this you were called because Christ suffered by suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth when they hurled their insults at him uh, he did not retaliate Uh, when he suffered he made no threats instead he entrusted himself to him who judges justly now how did peter know this how did peter identify with his story because who is peter Right, what do we know about Peter? We know that Peter was a zealot. He was, he, he was passionate about uh, overthrowing uh, the Roman Empire. He was a fiery guy. He was an angry guy. Uh, we see this uh, in, um, in uh, John 10. He says this, he says, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. And this is when uh, the soldiers are coming to arrest Christ on the, on the night he was arrested. Uh, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. So he's saying, uh, don't take me, but don't take my disciples. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. Uh, I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, peaceful, loving guy, uh, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus, and Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. I shall not, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And that's how Peter knew that submission in the end would win. And Peter knew that the pain and the agony that he witnessed in his Savior and his friend that he loved, he knew that God could turn that backwards He knew that God could turn that upside down. He knew that whatever suffering we endure, whatever pain we endure, whatever brokenness we endure, whatever injustice we endure uh, can be turned upside down by the power of the cross and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That this story that we're a part of, this world that we're a part of, the government that we, we, we uh, submit to, uh, that built this school that we're able to meet in, uh, that all of these structures that are a huge and influential part of our lives are not the be-all and end-all of the way that history is going to unfold. That God, by his power, uh, can take every broken and distorted thing and bring glory and beauty and life and resurrection and he goes on and says this he says he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sins and live for righteousness he acknowledges uh this this uh, way in which salvation works and he says this by his wounds you have been healed Uh, We often use this text, just that phrase to talk about uh, healing prayer, and I think it's applicable. It was certainly used by our early church fathers that way. But in its context, uh, by his wounds you have been healed, Uh, he's talking about um, by the wounds that Jesus received unjustly, the wounds that you receive unjustly will be healed. The wounds that you receive unjustly will be healed. For you, like sheep, were gone astray, and he brings this full circle now. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let me tell you, it is a lot different. There's a huge difference between a ruler to whom you submit and a shepherd whom you follow. And we find ourselves in the midst of a broken culture, in the midst of a a broken system that we're still called to submit to as children of a loving father and sheep of a loving shepherd. Absolutely secure and absolutely safe and absolutely protected by his incredible love. You are foreigners and you are strangers. You are refugees living in this culture. But your real shepherd, your real leader is Jesus Christ. Will we obey him? Will we follow him uh, wherever he leads us? Let's stand up. Lord, this is an incredibly challenging uh, text to us. Now, we are not people who get submission. We are not people who uh, get obedience. We are not people who uh, like the idea of anyone or anything having any authority over us whatsoever. But that's okay. We look past every human authority and ask that you would give us a grace to see that ultimately we are living lives that are obedient and submitted to you. Would you let ourselves see ourselves in our cultural as being in our culture as being led by you? As being owned by you, as being fathered by you, as being loved by you. And let us not just see that through a haze, Father. Let us not just see that uh, through uh, the, the pain of, of some of what we struggle with here and our frustration with some of what we see here. But let us see that uh, so clearly. Let your leadership and your rulership and your kingship and your fatherhood of us be uh, so evident to us in the moment that we would be able to in any moment cry out to you, oh, Heavenly Father, we love you, we serve you, we worship you. And all this means nothing by comparison. And in that, Father, would you give us grace of a testimony of a story to be told. Would you uh, give us a story of grace, a story of love, a story of grace in adversity, a story of joy in pain, a story of glory in the midst of suffering, Father? Let your joy be poured out among us. Let your joy be poured out in our hearts. Let salvation reign in us. Draw us into you. We love you. We worship you. Our lives are are yours. Thank you, Jesus.